Amen. It is a joy to be together as a church and to worship our great triune God, isn't it? I want to welcome Pastor Stephen back. Some of you know he's been uh, sick for a couple weeks, so good to have you back, back with us. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 5. Martin Lloyd-Jones might be a name that some of you know, some of you may not. He was a famous preacher in London in the mid-20th century, and he tells a story about a friend of his who was a pastor from Rwanda, and this pastor friend had come, he'd come to England, and he was traveling around the different churches in their denomination and sharing many exciting stories about a great revival that was taking place uh, there in Rwanda. Well, a few years after that, this same friend came up to visit again from Rwanda, and he was visiting a number of churches again, just like he did before, except this time, he decided he was going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to preach about Jesus. And there was a number of people who would come up to Lloyd-Jones, and they would thank him for coming and thank him for speaking, but there were many who expressed disappointment. They said, we were really hoping that you would tell us something of the revival going on in Rwanda. They really were not that interested in hearing about Jesus. I think many of us here today, we know who Jesus is, and we know why Jesus came, what he came to do, but perhaps the good news has become old news to you. Listen, if we ever lose our fascination uh, with Jesus Christ, if we ever lose our excitement about the gospel, we are actually in great spiritual danger. The author of Hebrews wrote to a people who were wavering in their faith, people who needed a renewed vision of the glory and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I'm not going to preach Hebrews today. We're in Luke chapter 5. But it is my aim today to help us pay closer attention to what we have already heard, lest we drift away. And there's a reason for that. It is in knowing Jesus that we find life. It is in knowing Jesus that we find salvation. It is in knowing and seeing and considering Jesus that we experience joy. And so as we continue to explore the gospel of Luke, I hope that you will be moved, that you will be motivated, that you will be excited even as we gain a continual sight of him. As we look to Jesus and contemplate who he is and what it is that he came to do for us. I invite you to follow along as I read from Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good." 
Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand these sayings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would stir up within us joy at all that Jesus is for us. Lord, give us a hunger to know him, a desire to see him as he really is. I pray that your word would strengthen our faith and move us to worship, praise, obedience as we go from here today. Amen. In Luke chapter 5, we've witnessed a number of conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes and these groups because they're often both surprised and offended by Jesus' actions. How can Jesus claim to have authority to forgive sins, they ask? Why is it that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know who they are? Why is he spending time with them? And then here, we find that people bring a new challenge. Why is Jesus and his disciples, why are they not fasting? Why are they feasting? Well, before we can dive into Jesus' answer to their question and, and seek to understand the truth that that answer reveals, we really need to understand the question, first of all. What does it mean when they say the disciples of John, verse 33, fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Well, very obviously, there's a comparison that is being made here between the followers of Jesus and these two other groups. One group is the disciples of John the Baptist. We met John early on in in this gospel, the book of Luke, and we saw that he had a dynamic ministry, a ministry that was widespread, a ministry that had great impact as he came preaching repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah. John's birth, like Jesus's, was miraculous. John, like Jesus, was filled with power by the Holy Spirit. John, like Jesus, was part of God's plan to bring this gospel to fruition for his people. John, unlike Jesus, was not the Messiah. He's a forerunner, preparing the way for the Christ. And there were many disciples who followed John, many people who embraced his teaching, and they hung on every word, and they responded obediently and in faith to his message. So that's one group. There's the disciples of John, but they also make reference to the disciples or the followers of the Pharisee movement. We've been dealing with these Pharisees the last several weeks. They too were a movement, a spiritual movement even, a restoration movement within Israel, a group that was highly devoted to God's law, very dedicated to purity and holiness. And there were many uh, devotees to this line of teaching, people who followed this movement of the Pharisees. It was very popular among the people. So what's being implied here with this comparison is that the followers of Jesus were somehow out of line, that the followers of Jesus were not spiritually serious because their practices did not seem to line up with what would be expected, what these other groups did, these other groups that were very serious about following God. So he says, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees. Uh, Offering prayers is not referring here to prayer in general. I think offering prayers here is deeply connected with fasting, which is why Jesus doesn't even really respond to the question directly about prayer, because it's really one and the same. We know from Luke's gospel, there's many times where Jesus prays. He often will withdraw and go pray in private. He'll go up on the mountain early in the morning. He doesn't pray publicly like the Pharisees. He's not looking to do it in a prominent location like the Pharisees so that everybody can see him and be impressed. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't devoted to prayer. 
We also know he taught his disciples about prayer. He gave them parables and stories where he taught them the importance of persistent prayer. Jesus taught them how to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, he gave them an example of what it looks like to pray faithfully. And Jesus even invited the disciples to pray with him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted his closest friends to watch and pray with him. So Jesus doesn't even answer the objection about prayer, but he does respond to the point about fasting because that really seems to be the primary concern. Why is it that you're not fasting and praying? Well, Jesus does answer that. There's two groups here in mind. Again, John's disciples, they practiced fasting. This denial of the physical desires of their body, going without food, skipping meals for a day or even a number of days, that was their expression of repentance. Remember, this was the main thrust of John's message. And so in their grief over sin and their desire to come humbly before God to receive all that he would do, they were setting aside food and devoting themselves to prayer and fasting because they're looking forward to the coming of Messiah. John was telling them that he was coming soon. So they were preparing the way. And just like John, their leader, who symbolically stayed out in the wilderness and he wore rough clothing and he survived on a subsistence diet of locusts and honey, they too would set aside the comforts of life to express their repentance from sin and their longing for the Messiah, that that's what they really needed. And it's easy for us to maybe assume that, you know, wouldn't all of John's followers pretty immediately just transfer over to Jesus once he came on the scene? But we find in Scripture that wasn't the case. John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, they actually overlapped a bit. And not everything was so clear to everyone in the moment. In fact, even John himself, later in life, had questions for Jesus. When he's in prison, he sends messengers, says, Are are you the Christ or or is there another one who is to come? So it's not always crystal clear for these disciples. So that explains why there's some disciples of John that are doing things a little bit differently than this growing group of disciples that are following Jesus. There's still a lot of people connected to his ministry. The Pharisees and their followers also fasted, but their fasting was different than the fasting of John's disciples. Their fasting was not a spontaneous act of repentance, showing their longing for the Messiah to come. Rather, it was simply a traditional Jewish expression of piety. It showed their religious devotion to the law. We do have examples of fasts in the Old Testament. There are times of crisis, times of loss, times of national revival where the people did sort of spontaneously come together and fast and pray. But the Old Testament law only required one fast. This was not something that they were mandated to do on a regular basis outside of the Day of Atonement. On one day per year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all of Israel was called to fast, demonstrate their repentance of sin and their acknowledgement that blood had to be shed for their sins to be cleansed. But that's it. That's the only fast that was required by the law of God. The Pharisees, however had made a practice out of their own traditions of fasting twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday during the daylight hours, the Pharisees and their followers would fast. And they usually made quite a great show of it. They would wear shoddy clothing, torn clothing. They would put ashes and dust on their head. They would make their faces look sad and gaunt because they wanted to make it very obvious that everyone around them knew just how devoted and serious they were. Wow, those guys are really spiritual. 
That, that's the effect they were going for. We see in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells later, we see an example of this sort of self-righteous attitude that's very impressed with their own ritual and performance. In Luke 18, 11, Jesus tells of a Pharisee standing by himself in a prominent place in the temple, praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, the Pharisees had taken fasting, which was a a practice that God had instituted for the Day of Atonement, something that had become an appropriate uh, expression of repentance and dependency on God, and they had turned it into something else. They had turned fasting into a mechanism for impressing people. And ironically, by denying their physical hunger, they were feeding their self-righteous ego. The Apostle Paul would later point out that such practices, that kind of fasting, has no spiritual value at all. In Colossians 2, verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says in verse 23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees both fast, but they fast for different reasons. They fast in different ways. But what about Jesus and his disciples? They've been feasting, not fasting. If you look at the verses right before this, Jesus has called Levi, this tax collector. Levi left everything behind to follow Jesus. And in verse 29, it says, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I don't know if this feast was on a Monday or on a Thursday. I don't know if John's disciples perhaps were fasting on that day, but we do know that Jesus and his disciples were feasting. And this perplexed the people. Why don't they fast like the other groups? Did Jesus not believe in fasting? Were they not spiritually sincere? What's going on here? So it says they come and ask. They come and ask him in verse 33. And as Jesus would often do, Jesus responds to this question by simply pointing to some normal aspects of everyday life. He says, well, I'll I'll explain why. And he talks about a wedding feast. He talks about patching clothes. He talks about wine. He gives them these little mini parables showing that what his disciples were doing is actually quite appropriate. It's fitting. And if these people would come to understand who Jesus is, if they could come to understand what it is that Jesus came to accomplish, rather than object to the feasting, they would join in with the celebration. And Jesus' answer to this challenge, this question, we discover a glorious truth. The simple point of Jesus' illustrations, the point of the message this morning, is that Jesus' presence is cause for joy. The presence of Jesus is a cause for great joy. And as Jesus explains himself, we find two reasons why. Two reasons why the presence of Jesus is cause for joy. The first we find in verse 34 through 35. Jesus' presence is cause for joy, number one, because of who he is. Because of who he is. Jesus said to them in verse 34, 
Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He starts off with a rhetorical question in verse 34, and he uses the illustration of a wedding to make his point. Now, a Jewish wedding was nothing like our weddings today. It wasn't a 30-minute ceremony with a two-hour reception afterward. Okay, that's how a lot of weddings are that at least I've been to. A Jewish wedding in the first century was a week-long party. It was a seven-day feast, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime celebration that would have been one of the highlights of a person's life. So to think about fasting, refusing to engage in a seven-day feast, that would have been unthinkable to the people that Jesus was speaking to. In fact, the Jewish rabbis had even made stipulations that prohibited fasting during a wedding celebration. The Jewish rabbis, even the ones that followed the teaching of the Pharisees, said, yes, fasting is good. Twice a week we do this, yada, yada, yada. But on a wedding feast, that's an exception. Everybody feasts during the wedding celebration. This was common knowledge. Everyone knew this. And Jesus likens himself to the bridegroom, implying that because he is there, because he is present, because of who he is, fasting is not appropriate. It is out of place. Think about what this would have meant for John's disciples, the, ones that, the one that they were waiting for, the one that they were longing to see, the one that God had promised had arrived. The Pharisees who prized the Old Testament law, the disciples of the Pharisees who were so dedicated to the Old Testament scriptures, the one in their midst was the one who had fulfilled all of that. He was the answer. He was the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophecies of Messiah. So Jesus' presence is a cause for joy. There's a reason to feast. This imagery of the bridegroom is significant because it not only appeals to their common sense. I mean, yeah, everybody knows this. But it also hints at a deeply significant theological reality. In the Old Testament, God is often described as Israel's husband. Listen to Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Israel had experienced discipline. Israel had experienced consequences for their idolatry and their sin. Yes, God had poured out judgment on his people. But that wasn't the end of the story. Israel was longing for the day when God would restore them to himself, and it would be like a bridegroom and a wife being reunited together. There would be compassion and love and joy. That's the imagery of God and his people that we find in the Old Testament. John the Baptist even used this bridegroom language in his preaching. In John chapter 3, verse 28, John admits, I am not the Christ, but I have been set in before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
John the Baptist recognizes Jesus is the star of the show. He's the bridegroom. I'm just like part of the wedding party, and my joy is connected to his joy. My, my excitement is because of his love and the relationship he has with his bride. This metaphor continues throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. He quotes from the book of Genesis and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's a metaphor here of the love that Christ has for his people, likened to that of a husband and a wife. The book of Revelation says, A day is coming where there will be a great wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. A climactic celebration of indescribable joy as we enter into the eternal kingdom. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. This imagery of a bridegroom is imagery of joy and celebration, but also imagery that captures God's love for his people. So while Jesus uses sort of their common life experience to make his point, there's also hints here of something even greater. Hints of a messianic mission to rescue sinners and to make them collectively his beloved. There are hints here that Israel's savior has come, that the one John was waiting for had arrived, and this is a cause for joy. So fasting and mourning and grief and expressing that sort of holy dissatisfaction While that's entirely appropriate in other situations, it's completely out of place when Jesus is there. Jesus is not against fasting. In fact, he notes that one day they will fast. One day, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, verse 35, then they will fast in those days. This is almost shockingly um, introduced as completely unexpected that the bridegroom would be violently taken away. We know that Jesus is going to be dragged out of the city and crucified by those who should have received him with joy, and that will be a cause for mourning. The disciples will grieve. They will fast. They will pray. But today is not that day. Today, Jesus is present. He's calling sinners to himself, and they're celebrating by feasting. I think all of this makes clear that the answer to their question was Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? Well, because Jesus is present. And because of who he is, feasting is actually right and necessary, while fasting is out of place. So the presence of Jesus is cause for joy because of who he is. He's the bridegroom. He is the love of God incarnate who has come to be restored with his people. But there's a second reason for joy, not only because of who Jesus is, but secondly, the presence of Jesus is cause for joy because of what he comes to do. That's verse 36 through 39. The presence of Jesus is cause for joy because of what it is that he comes to do. Jesus makes clear in these illustrations he gives that Jesus has come and he has come specifically to do something new. The word new is repeated seven times in these few short verses. And what Jesus is making clear is that in doing something new, the structures that they had erected were not compatible. What he is doing can't be controlled or contained by their religious system. 
At first, he uses the illustration of patching a garment. He tells them, Luke says, a parable, this little story that has a spiritual truth embedded in it. Verse 36, he says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. He says, that doesn't make sense. Would you ruin something new to fix something that's old? No, because then you have two damaged garments. Besides, new cloth on an old garment is out of place, and it even leads to further damage. Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us that Jesus adds, you know, once you wash that old garment, that new cloth hasn't shrunk yet. And once it shrinks, it's just going to make the tear even worse in the old garment. So what's the simple point? Jesus is saying, none of you do this because you know it doesn't work. It makes no sense. New cloth and old cloth are not compatible. That's the simple point. New cloth and old cloth are not compatible. Then he moves on to an illustration of wineskins. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Back in those days, you couldn't just go to Walmart you know, and buy some Tupperware. They had to make all their stuff. And to store and to, um, and, and to produce wine, they would often take an animal skin, completely skin an animal, and after treating and cleaning it in a very detailed manner, they would sew up uh, all of the, the, the arm holes and leg holes, and they would use the neck opening as the spout to create a sort of bag or a pouch that they would store wine in. And, and as they put the wine in there, as the wine fermented, as those gases would expand, that fresh skin was still elastic enough that it could stretch. And so they would always put new skin in a new wine skin. But if you used an old, already stretched out skin for new wine, the fermentation process, as it expanded, it would cause the skin to burst open. It had no stretch left in it. And then you would lose both your wine and your wine skin. Everyone knew this. This was common knowledge in, in that day. So what's the simple point Jesus is making? Once again, he's saying, you don't do that because it doesn't work. No one does this because new wine and old wine skins are not compatible. They're not compatible. It's not fitting. They don't fit together. And then since he's on the topic of wine, he adds one more final illustration in verse 39. He says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This, again, would have been obvious to everyone who is present. People don't switch from old wine to new wine. That's backwards. We know this from the story captured in the Gospel of John when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. He famously turned water into wine. And everyone was shocked because the stuff they brought out at the end was better than the stuff they brought out at the beginning. And that's not how everybody usually did things. So once again, the simple point when Jesus says here that, that no one after drinking old wine desires new, he's saying that process is backwards. No one does that. Because a palate that is accustomed to aged wine is incompatible with new wine. So I think all three of these little stories are driving home the same kind of point. You don't put a new patch on an old garment. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. And you don't switch from old wine to new wine. And you don't expect Jesus to fit into the old obsolete structures of the Pharisees' religion. That's the point he's making. Jesus has come to do something new. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find that Jesus is coming to usher in and to inaugurate a new covenant. 
a new covenant that is better than the old covenant. He is there to make sinners into new creations. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that Jesus has come to take Gentiles and Jews and unite them together into one new man in the church. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus ultimately will one day make all things new. That he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus comes to do something new. Now I want to make clear, clarify, Jesus is not saying here that the Old Testament is inferior. He came to fulfill the law, not repudiate it. So Jesus is not saying the Old Testament is backwards or inferior. No, Jesus came to bring to fruition God's promises from the Old Testament. We've seen that all throughout Luke, that the Old Testament is quoted and applied and acknowledged that what Jesus is doing is the continuation of what God did in the Old Testament. He's there to advance God's purposes that have been spelled out in history, spelled out in prophecy. So if Jesus is condemning anything, it's not the Old Testament scripture. Jesus is rather condemning the human traditions that had sprung up and sort of become like barnacles weighing down the Jewish religion. He was condemning the false notion that the Pharisees believed that these external rituals could make you righteous. Elsewhere, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So if Jesus is dunking on anything, it's that. It's that, that man-centered, man-made religious structure that the Pharisees had cobbled together. Those man-made regulations are inferior to what Jesus is doing. And he will not simply be patched into their system. He will not be contained by their spiritually dry traditions. Their dead religion is incompatible with Jesus and his message of salvation. The presence of Jesus is cause for joy because of who Jesus is, but also because of what Jesus came to do, to bring in a new covenant to make sinners into new creations, to unite Jew and Gentile into this new man in the church, and one day to bring in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And if these people had understood who Jesus was, that he's the bridegroom, if they had understood what he came to do, the newness of the gospel that he was bringing to bear, then they would have joined in the celebration with him rather than simply critiquing Jesus. They would have set aside their fasting and joined in the feasting. The presence of Jesus is cause for joy. Joy because of who Jesus is and what he comes to do. So what does that mean for us today? I don't know if any of you were fasting when you came in here. If you were, it was probably that intermittent fasting, you know, trying to lose a couple pounds, not a religious discipline. But how does this apply to us? I don't know if any of you would call yourself Pharisees or disciples of John. We probably are here because we say we believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. So how do we apply this truth that the presence of Jesus is cause for joy? Just two very simple takeaways as we conclude here. Number one, there is joy for us now. There is joy for us now. There is joy for us in Jesus 
And this is something that touches every moment of every day of our lives. All people, without exception, seek joy. Everybody does. But few seek it in Jesus. Many of us have sought for joy in money, in physical pleasure, in success, in escapism, entertainment, comfort, fill in the blank. All people seek joy. Very few seek it in Jesus. Come to Jesus and experience the joy that he offers because it's better than the joy that you will find anywhere else. Come and be part of his bride. Rejoice that you get to be part of the church. Come, like Psalm 34 verse 8 says, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps you're not a Christian today. Perhaps you've never repented of sin and trusted in the gospel. I promise you, there is no joy outside of Christ that compares with the joy of knowing Jesus. It is what you need. It is what you are seeking, even if you don't know it. That's what explains the emptiness and the hollowness that is at the bottom of your heart, is you need Christ, and you need the joy that only he can provide. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is joy for you if you're not yet a Christian. There is joy for you today that is to be had in Jesus. But listen, he will only be your joy. You will only experience the sweetness of that joy when he is received for who he is. And the new work that he is doing becomes the dominant reality in your life. Listen, Jesus is not just going to be patched in. He doesn't just want to be a simple addition to your pre-existing beliefs, your pre-existing priorities, your pre-existing lifestyle and habits. No, he comes in to make everything new. Some of you may say, while you're talking about all this joy, Does that mean that you're just always going to be happy? Does that mean everything will be easy? Does that mean all my problems go away if I come to Christ? No. Listen, the pains and trials of life are real. And this reality that there is joy in Jesus should not lead us to adopt some sort of shallow, superficial Christianity where we have to pretend like everything's okay, pretend like nothing's wrong, and always paste a smile onto our face and somehow ignore the the difficulties of living in a broken world. No, the, the joy I'm talking about is a joy that goes deeper than our circumstances. It's a joy that is rooted in the forgiveness of sins. No matter what happens to my health, no matter what happens to my bank account, no matter what happens at the level of human relationships, no matter what happens in terms of my reputation in the world, my sins are forgiven in Christ. And that is an eternally fixed reality. It doesn't go up and down. That's the basis for joy. We have joy in our new identity in Christ. No matter what happens to me in life, no matter what painful circumstances we may go through as Christians, we are sons and daughters of the King. We belong to his family. We are children of God, and nothing can change that. No matter what happens in life, no matter what painful circumstances we face, we have joy in the new fellowship that is ours in the church. We have a spiritual family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we belong to this new community that Christ is building. That's who we are. 
No matter what happens, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You might say, that's great for them. Jesus was at their table. He's not at my table. Listen, all who believe in Christ are given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We sang this morning in worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus says that he sends the comforter into our hearts. It's the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. And the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of his presence and operation in our life, is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and all those other things. It's joy. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. God is not far off. He is in us. He is with us to strengthen us and preserve us and sanctify us. So listen, the joy I'm talking about is not a joy that's based on your circumstances. Again, there is suffering, there is difficulty, there is hardship in life. But the Christian who knows Christ and those who find Jesus to be their greatest joy and their greatest treasure, they have roots that go down deeper than all of those circumstances so that when everything happens to you, not if, when you get that diagnosis, when you attend the funeral, when you lose everything, There is a deeper rooted joy in Christ and all that he is, all that he provides, and that joy is what sustains you through the tears, through the trials, through the losses because you know you have Christ and he is your joy. Listen, there is joy for us now. If you don't know Christ, come to him today and if you do know Christ, let him be your joy. Look to him, seek him. Such joy will require that we recognize who Jesus really is, that he's the bridegroom, that we submit to him as Lord, that we trust him as Savior, because again, he's not just wanting to be an accessory and get sort of patched in to your pre-existing life. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's not the best man. Think about that. We often want to be the star of the show, and we think Jesus would be a great supporting actor for my life. It would be great if Jesus would come along and help me accomplish all the things I want to do. That's not how it works. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the star of the show. And we find our place and our identity in being connected to him and his mission and his glory. We need to be made new and conformed to his program. He doesn't come to join ours. Listen, when you allow Christ to be central, you allow him to be supreme, and when you allow the self to be crucified, that's where joy begins. And it is a joy that you can have now, a joy you can have today. Not only is joy ours now, but secondly, joy is also ours forever. Joy is promised to us for eternity. Jesus is no longer physically present And it may be appropriate at times for us now to fast. There's times now where we mourn. We, sort of like John's disciples in a sense, are longing for our Messiah, not to appear the first time, but to return. But he's going to. Jesus is going to return. And when he does, the feast is going to be eternal. We're going to behold his face and see his glory. 
And the more we come to know of him as we gaze upon Christ, the more we understand who he is, the more we gaze upon the vastness of his glory, which blows our mind because it's far greater than anything we could have imagined in this life. The more we know of him, the greater our joy becomes. There's an expansion of our joy as we see more and more of the glory of Christ. And the more and more joy we experience in Christ, the more we want to know him, the more we want to see his glory. So in that sense, being in the presence of Christ for eternity means an ever-expanding, in exponential sense, an expanding, increasing joy for all eternity. That's promised to us. We look forward to that. And the reality of that future joy should be so real to us, so precious to us, that it actually causes us to start rejoicing ahead of time, that we have joy for eternity. I wonder if there's some people who looked at Jesus' disciples feasting at Levi's house. Maybe they were followers of John. Maybe they were disciples of the Pharisees. I wonder if there's some people who saw that and they thought, wow, that looks like the good life. I kind of wish I was a disciple of Jesus. Listen, I hope that people think that when they look at us. I hope they say, wow, that looks like the good life. Not that everything's easy, not that there's no difficulty or trials, but that those people have something. They have joy. In Jesus, we have a joy that is deeper and more lasting and more satisfying than anything the world has to offer. So as you come to embrace Jesus as the source of your joy, don't be surprised if people look at your life and they wonder why you're a little bit different. They're going to think that the way you live doesn't make sense. Some of the choices you make don't make sense. Some of the ways you order your life don't make sense. The ways you respond to circumstances don't make sense because it doesn't fit their expectations, because they don't realize who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, and they have not received him as the bridegroom. May we be so joyful in Jesus that people start to wonder about us, that maybe they even ask us some questions. Why are you not like other religious people? Why are you not bound to the human structures that everybody else abides by? What's the reason for your joy and your freedom? And may we simply answer, Jesus. Our joy is rooted in who he is and all that he has come to do for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we rejoice today to consider that you, the Son of God, have come to demonstrate perfect love, to die on the cross to redeem sinners like us, that you have called Sinners like us with the baggage that we have, with the deficiencies and failures that we have, and you've welcomed us into the family. You've given us a seat at the table. You've invited us to the feast. You're doing something new, and you've called us to be part of it. Lord, we rejoice in that gift of grace today. But Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that often it is hard for us to relish that joy and to live in that reality there is suffering and difficulty and discouragement that often competes for our heart's affection and there are times where we start looking for joy in the wrong places 
Lord, forgive us for seeking in the world what can only be found in you. Lord, may we as Christians seek you as our greatest treasure, delight in you, believing that you are good, that in your presence is fullness of joy, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, as we seek to rejoice today in all that we have in the gospel, I pray that you would also fill us with hope and anticipation of the future joy that is ours in heaven. Lord, for those who may not know you today, those who came into this room without joy, those who came into this room discouraged, empty, Lord, I pray that today they would be honest with themselves and acknowledge that what they lack is Jesus. And I pray that you would free them from the lies they believe that if they can just get something else that this world has to offer, then they will be happy. Lord, please help them to see the emptiness of that. I pray that you would open their eyes to Christ, and that they would come and believe in him, submit to him, receive him as Lord and Savior, and begin to experience the joy that he provides. And Lord, may this church be salt and light in this community. May people see our joy and may we rightly represent the glory of the gospel that we've received. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.